Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to These Times. I'm Tom McTay. And I'm Helen Thompson. Over the last few weeks and months, we've covered most of the really big crises that are going on in the world right now. Iran and Israel, the crisis in the Red Sea, the battle for control of Taiwan. And Helen, we really must return to Ukraine and Gaza at some point as well. But in this episode, we're going to focus on the one country that is involved in all of these crises in one way or another. And that is, of course, the United States. And in particular, the growing likelihood of a Biden-Trump rerun later this year. Just to paint the picture of where we are today, in the same week that Trump comfortably won in New Hampshire, a border and constitutional crisis really intensified in Texas after the governor there, Greg Abbott, declared that the federal government had broken the compact, in his words, between the United States and the states of America by failing to secure the border, an issue that plays right into Trump's hands. Meanwhile, back in Washington, Republican senators have tied together their willingness to continue authorizing money for Ukraine, with Biden shifting to much tighter controls on the border with Mexico. So clearly in this campaign, the border with Mexico is going to be both a domestic issue for the United States in the campaign over this year and a geopolitical issue. The question we're going to ask this week then is, what does Donald Trump's political resurgence say about the state of the American Union and what does it mean for the United States' geopolitical power? The Fulton County Grand Jury has voted to indict Donald Trump. This Manhattan Grand Jury votes to indict former President Donald Trump. I'm the victim of it and it's my great honour because you're finding out they're doing things to me that has never happened and here I am and we're leading in every poll. Migrant encounters reached an all-time high in the month of December at more than 302,000. We need to let Greg Abbott do his job, which is to put up the razor wire. I stand with Texas. We've got to secure this border. Today, the Justice Department is announcing significant enforcement actions against the largest, most violent, and most prolific fentanyl trafficking operation in the world. The great silent majority is rising like never before. And under our leadership, the forgotten man and woman will be forgotten no longer. So, Helen, it's an absolute minefield trying to work out all of the various bits uh, that we need to talk about in this podcast with Donald Trump. So I'm going to try to summarize some of them to begin with. To start with, Trump's got all of these legal problems. So he's got multiple civil cases. I mean, just one, I think it was last week, where he had to pay $83 million in a defamation case in New York. But there are four criminal prosecutions as well, and 91 indictments in two state courts and two federal courts. Now, general understanding is it doesn't matter what happens in these cases necessarily in terms of he cannot be stopped from being the Republican nominee in the election. But what can happen is that some states might be able to take him off the ballot. And that is currently a question that is before the Supreme Court, because 
Colorado and Maine have made this move. Other states tried and then rejected it. So that's another thing going on. The Supreme Court is likely to rule on that in February. And then you've got the politics that we briefly outlined there at the start. So you've got this big issue of on the border with Texas and Greg Abbott essentially trying to enforce the border himself using his state powers as a as the governor there using state troopers and this being challenged in the supreme court and the supreme court ruling against him in a case that's actually quite complicated very narrowly 5 to 5 to 4 but he has said he's going to continue fighting this he has the support of almost all of the other republican governors who seem to be willing to support him in this effort and of course of Trump himself so this is a both a border and a migration crisis you know as we might even understand it in the UK or in Europe but it's tied into a broader constitutional crisis that is very complicated and then tied again into this wider geopolitical crisis because of what we discussed at the start the republican senators refusing to sign off more aid until Biden moves and really imposes much tougher controls at the border. And then you've got to think about, pull the camera even further back and say, this is going on while US soldiers are being killed in drone attacks in Jordan, which is a nightmare for any sitting president because it, you know, it suddenly brings back memories of you know, Jimmy Carter and a sense of weakness that all incumbent presidents are really going to struggle with. So I think that is the kind of the broader issue. And does go some way to explaining why we're even talking about Trump as a potential candidate when it was only a couple of years ago in the midterms where he looked almost, you know, as if he was on the way out. And there was Governor DeSantis, the governor from Florida, who seemed to be emerging as a kind of Trumpist candidate without the personal baggage of Donald Trump. But he is now pulled out of the race and Donald Trump looks very likely to become the candidate. I think we should make a few things clear to begin with in terms of just what an extraordinary political situation mm, this is exactly yeah. in the United States in domestic terms. Uh, I mean, you cannot, I think, find an election where you have the front runner for one of the party's nominations. And as you said, highly unlikely now, politically in the electoral sense, um, to be defeated for mm -hmm. that nomination. And I think if he were to win in the South Carolina primary coming up against um, Nikki Haley, that would really be the end of her candidacy, yeah. given that that is her um, home state. Facing this multiple set of mm. legal cases, some of which are scheduled at least to go to trial this year. Yeah. So that's about him and that they're tied directly in, in two cases, the ones that are being prosecuted by the Department of Justice against what happened in his presidency. Yes. So both in terms of the removal of documents from the White House when he was leaving um, office and in terms of election subversion and the, his attempt to remain in power in January of 2021. And obviously that legal case is tied to the reasons why in Colorado and Maine there have been these moves to remove him from the ballot. Yeah. Because they say because of the events around the 6th of January, of that year, then he is disqualified because he's essentially broken the the oath yes. um, of um, office. So there is the possibility, depending obviously on what happens in these court cases, both of the ones about him as an individual, but also his el eligibility, that he might not be able to run. Although I suppose I mean, there's two barriers to that, isn't there? There's the Supreme Court, which is now a heavily conservative Supreme Court, which will presumably which will have to rule on those cases at some point. And then I guess he really needs to be struck off the ballot in states that he could win for him to then be defeated, because he could be struck off in California and New York and it have no impact really on his ability to then win it, obviously, in Ohio, in Texas, in Florida, and to still secure a, um, the, the presidency. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the, the crucial question. But if the Supreme Court were to say that the actions of the Colorado Supreme Court, and I think it's the main Secretary of State, mm. were constitutional in removing him, then that would obviously open the possibility in any... Republican-dominated state that don't actually want him yes. on the ballot. And and this is the point, I think, when when you start to get into completely unknown political 
um, territory. And I think it gets to the question that in a way we're like trying to answer here, which is like, how is it that he has been able politically to come back? Yeah, exactly. Why are they still choosing him? Because we've got what happened in the act of um, leaving office Mm -hmm. where, you know, whatever way you want to look at it, he discredited the presidency. He tried to end the, he tried to stop the certification process Mm -hmm. for the election in the US Senate acting against his own vice president. And then, as you said, Tom, is that if we go to the midterm elections in 2022, pretty much all his handpicked candidates, Mm -hmm. so to speak, whom he backed did pretty badly. Yeah. And DeSantis, who was considered his rival, did very well in mm-hmm. the election in Florida uh, at the, the the same time. So part of the question that's got to be asked is, is how is it that DeSantis turned out to be so politically weak as a competitor mm-hmm. to Trump? Because if he hadn't been, it's difficult to see, I think, how Trump could have come back from that. And that gets us to the question then of like, does Trump often benefit actually from the weaknesses of his political opponents. Is that the kind of story around Trump's apparent political success? Mm -hmm. Or is there something structurally working out about American politics in which Trump is the symptom of these structure forces so that he doesn't not go away because he's Donald Trump, but he doesn't go away because the big questions that have caught up in him somehow won't go away. I've got to say I lean to the latter much more because I, I think he he partly makes some of these candidates appear weaker than they should be. I mean, DeSantis is a pretty successful governor of Florida and looked formidable at that point and has, and has since just wilted in the sort of the Trump gaze. I mean, Trump is relentless in his abuse of any candidate that comes close to him. It was the same when he secured the nomination the first time in 2015-16, where he's just making these other Republican candidates, almost that some of them looked like they were going to cry on stage, I remember in some of the debates, and they just wilted away. He started with, I think it was one or two percent in the polls, and then it was the debates that saw him take off. So there's certainly an element of, you know, celebrity and character that uh, appeals to uh, enough people in the Republican Party that makes these other candidates appear weaker, Jeb Bush and and then and then the, all the candidates today, but also the Democratic candidates like Clinton, because I, I guess you, you can look at her as a, as a, a deeply flawed candidate for the presidency, but she was also a formidable candidate as well in that she was uh, experienced, she had the backing of, of the Democratic Party. So I, I think, I, I suppose my instinct, and I don't know what yours would be, my instinct would be that it's too easy to put it all down to contingencies. There is something both in Trump, the, the person, the politician, and something deeper that he did on in his in the issues that he went with, whether that was border issues that he was talking about in the run-up to 2016, building a wall and getting the Mexicans to pay for it, and then going after China in particular. Those issues are structural issues in in American politics, and they're still with us today. So I I suppose he has, in the eyes of American voters, more credibility on those issues in some ways than than others who have shifted a bit. I mean, the Republican Party has been dragged into a Trump direction on, on those issues in particular. I think you can see that he's very good at playing the politics of destruction. Yeah against individual candidates. He did it to Marco Rubio with the little Marco name. I think it was Sleepy Joe, wasn't it, that he tried against Biden? That that didn't turn out to be as successful, but he was very personal in the way in which he attacked Hillary Clinton. But you have to say very effective in the way in which he attacked Hillary Clinton, and I think he was over um, DeSantis. Politics of the playground, yeah. Nonetheless, leaving that aside, I think you can say that he latched on to a set of issues that have persistent resonance yep. in American domestic politics and are actually tied in different ways to America's position in the world, which we'll perhaps talk in more detail about in the second half. And I would say it was the border with Mexico, mm-hmm. it was China, you say, and it was the Middle East. Yep. It was the attack on forever wars. Now, I think that what's interesting on the China question was you can structure as I think I've said before, the 2016 election, 
as a confront China candidate in Trump mm -hmm. versus a confront Russia candidate in Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Yep. And what's interesting is you end up with a presidency and subsequently that turns out to be confront China and confront <laughs> yes. Russia. But what's yep. then striking about that is that Trump was actually in this, what came to be the centre ground yes. where confront yep. China was concerned. And that, that I think then has consequences for how we understand what Biden has done in his presidency and why I think there's still a space for Trump, despite what Biden has done, in that Biden completely embraced the confront China. In fact, in a number of ways, I think you could say that Biden's policy on China has been tougher yep. than what Trump's was. You could also say that he took some of Trump's position away on the forever wars in the Middle East by pulling out of Afghanistan. Yeah, which was, which was effectively a, a Trump policy. Yeah, and, and yet on the border question, it's not been like that. The, the, this yeah. is a question where the difference between the Biden administration's policy and the Trump administration's policy, there's been a, like a chasm. And really that's now put, I think, Biden under like considerable pressure. So in that sense, one explanation as to why Trump hasn't gone away despite what happened at the end of his presidency, is because one of the fronts on which he attacked is still very much there. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a total failure of the Biden administration. I mean, it's clear. I, I think there's a John Gray line, isn't there, about populism being the term that liberals apply to the reaction to their own policies. And I think there is a lot to be said for that when you think of Donald Trump. So, I mean, I think you've got say, NAFTA in 1994, which is the free trade agreement with Mexico and Canada, signed under the Clinton administration. And then you've got the US-China Relations Act signed in 2000, again, a Clinton-era policy. Now, these are both trade liberalization policies that have enormous effects on American manufacturing and jobs. I think there are quite a few studies which show quite clearly that though there are enormous benefits in many ways to US consumers, cheaper goods and all the rest, there is a significant price to pay in American jobs, manufacturing jobs moving down into Mexico or into China. And actually, I think as we'll discuss, now that actually merging and China uh, using Mexico as a way to get into, into the United States... So these are policies with profound impacts on ordinary voters. And if you are, you know, if you've lost your job, obviously that is going to, you are not, you're, I don't suppose you're going to be particularly pro-free trade. So I think there, there is that something to think about. And there's also, I think, something, a couple of other things going on, which are structural issues that play into uh, Trump's support uh, that are not necessarily liberal policies in, in the kind of American sense. They're not left-wing policies, but there is this kind of, massive increase in inequality. When you look at the American economy, and it seems to be performing much better than European economies, and you think, why is there such angst in the United States about its economic performance? Well, I think in part, that is because a lot of ordinary people aren't seeing particularly the benefits of that growth. And there was something that plays into this inflation that I, I was looking at a graph, I think it was in the New York Times the other day, which was showing that under Trump, wages were outstripping inflation. Now, and under Biden, it's effectively been the other way around. So despite reasonable economic growth of around 3%, actually inflation for most of his presidency is, has been above wage growth. So again, ordinary people aren't necessarily feeling what it looks like on a on a piece of paper when you look at the GDP figures. I think lay on top of that, both the free trade and the inequality factors here with immigration and what is a really quite remarkable increase in immigration, both legal and illegal, over the past 30 or is it even 40 years now, where it's really changing the demographic makeup of the United States, which I think some of my old colleagues at the, at the Atlantic argue that is at the heart of the partisan divide, why it's hardening so much is this sense that the formerly white majority in the United States are seeing the country change demographically and are reacting to that. And obviously, we could make value judgments about that, but that is a, something that is happening in the United States. So I think all of those things are going on and they surely are playing into 
the rise of Donald Trump. It's, it's not possible to understand him without all of those factors. No, I think that's absolutely um, true. I think, though, that once we move from like the 2016 election mm. and we set aside the way he was able to attack Hillary Clinton's weaknesses and the structural forces that we've been discussing, and then we move on to what happened in 2020 and the aftermath of that for for now, we've got to bring in something else, which is the Trump presidency itself. itself. And the particular, the way that it um, ended. Because I would still suggest that back in 2016, you might well have expected any Republican candidate to have won the presidency, particularly perhaps against Hillary Clinton. That if you look at the mm. results in the election cycles after the 2008 election, with the exception of the presidential election in 2012, the Republicans were generally doing quite well uh, and the Democrats were generally yeah. doing quite badly. And one of the issues that was central to that was the healthcare reform mm-hmm. um, issue. And I think you can explain why the Republicans were not able to exploit that in 2012 in that in nominating Mitt Romney, they picked the one candidate who wasn't in a position because <laughs> yeah. of his own policies when he'd been governor of Massachusetts, really to, to run with a healthcare reform issue. So in that sense, there's something really very disruptive going on in that it's Donald Trump who wins as a Republican candidate or a nominally Republican candidate, mm-hmm. shall we say, yeah. in 2016. But there's also a way of just telling it in a bit more conventional partisan terms about election um, cycles and where that they had been going. But if you then move to now, you've got something I think rather different, and which is is that the election and Trump's ability to succeed in the Republican primaries is much, much more about Donald Trump himself. Mm-hmm. And he is clearly putting, in a way, at the centre of that, the idea that he is coming back for, if you like, in his mind, a kind of reckoning yeah. about what happened in the 2020 election and at the same time is his very behavior in Mm. that election and the aftermath of that election is then extremely motivating on the the democratic side because many people see this as a you know a great threat um to the american republic that somebody who behaved as he did is now a presidential candidate again and that's where these challenges to get him off the ballot are coming from but i think that what is becoming quite clear particularly in the events of the last um few um weeks around uh, in Texas, that on the one side that you've got Trump being framed quite understandably as a threat to the Democratic Republic. Yeah. And you've got Biden being framed as a threat to the American state itself. Right. Yes. To the yeah. idea of there being a state because of there being, in many people's minds, no border. No border. Yeah. And an, or at least an unwillingness of the federal government to defend that border. And again, I think to have both these narratives in play like the threat to the republic and the threat to the state. Again, you find, I just can't think like what the parallel election that we could draw on uh, to that um, is. And because Trump is very willing to talk in pretty brutal, dramatic language about what he would do Mm -hmm. in terms of dealing with the border question, including using force against the drug cartels in Mexico. And the fact that in part, I think, because the border looks like such a good issue from the electoral sense, from the Republicans' point of view, that you've got these Republican governors all, I think, but except for the governor, Republican governor of Vermont willing to back Texas. You've got this constitutional crisis yeah. coming to the fore, which really just divides, if you like, the core red states from the core blue yeah. State. And it, and it is, is a mirror of this increasing partisan divide that I just mentioned earlier. There's a great piece, I mentioned it before, in The Atlantic by this guy called Yoni Applebaum, who talks about, you know, is effectively is America coming to an end and tries to dig into this increasingly hard divide. And not just between red states and blue states, but between Republican and Democrat supporters. He has this figure that he, he, I think it was in the 70s. Something like 5% of Democrats or Republicans would say that they would be unhappy if their son or daughter married a person from the opposite party. And that's up to something like 50% now. And it's because of this kind of uh, mentality divide, I guess, that says, how could you possibly vote for Donald Trump? He's a legitimate threat to the republic and to democracy. And I I mean, I think there's some validity in that. And then looking at uh, the other side and the mentality of the other side saying, well, how can you vote for Joe Biden? He's just refusing 
to uh, deal with what is evidently a crisis on the border. And I and I think I often miss this until I start digging sort of back into American politics. The scale of the fentanyl crisis that we'll turn to in the second half that is just extraordinary. And the scale of the disorder in Mexico. So it's not just that like um, Calais and and, uh, and Dover, where there is a sense of lawlessness that the British state is not able to control its borders. This is on a scale that is just far beyond that. Um, and with a state that doesn't appear to be in control of a large section of its own territory. So this is this is just something that I think is hard for us in the UK to quite comprehend. The numbers are extraordinary as well, aren't they? I think it's, was it 250,000 crossings a month? Um, and there was, I think it was that was the figure for December, which that was, was the, the record that ever been in for one month since the data had been collected anyway. Right. And then that's, so that's illegal crossings, but I think legally um, the, America takes in something like a million people a year. Uh, so, so you have got a vast demographic change going on on top of this drug issue and illegal migration issue so that they're all obviously they're linked together in the political debate but they are separate questions but there is a legitimate crisis on the border that biden has not addressed and it is interesting that he chose not to address it whereas he did move on the question of china and trade in, in clearly in a Trumpian direction. So this looks like a real uh, sort of political mistake on the Democratic Party. You have to add into this the electoral calculus from the from Biden's point of view and then look at uh, the coalition that he put together in order to win in 2020, which was very dependent upon turnout. It had to be mm. because Trump actually increased the absolute number of votes that he got in 2020 compared to 2016, which is pretty unusual yeah. for a, a city sitting president. So the defence against Trump is like turn out the Democratic vote absolutely as high a rate like, yeah. as possible. Not necessarily, I mean, obviously Biden did take some Trump voters away, but the fundamental thing is about the mobilisation of turnout mm -hmm. and then keeping that coalition together. And in that sense... Trump himself acts as an asset for the Democratic side because he drives yes. his opponents yeah. to, to turn out. But I think if you look at the position that Biden is now in, and this gets us onto a little bit of territory we're going to talk about in the, in, in the second half, about how the Ukraine issue and the border issue have got tied together. And you look at the concessions that Biden has been willing to make to the Senate Republicans in trying to construct a deal. And he has been willing to basically abandon quite a bit of his border policy mm. since 2021, when he pretty much dismantled most of what Trump had put in place as the border policy. This has brought a, you know, a tremendous amount of criticism within parts of the Democratic Party, including the one of the senators from California, uh, yeah. and criticism about the fact that in the negotiations the Hispanic caucus haven't been um, represented. So actually Biden shifting yeah. in the direction of saying, OK, we need to reach an agreement with the Republicans about the border is in part a political liability for him too. And I think what we can see from this is the way in which actually the whole politics of migration, the whole politics of the border has been reshaping in ways which I think fit what you've just been saying. American politics, perhaps since the 90s, certainly I think during the, 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 the first two decades of this century. I think what's different, and this is what we're going to turn to um, after the break, because I don't think you can quite see this in the way in which the, the border was the issue for Trump, or Trump used the border issue in 2016, is the relationship of this to America's geopolitical position in the the world. This is partly about Ukraine, as we've already um, said, because of the negotiations in the Senate. But as you've hinted at already, um, Tom, it's also about the China question and the way in which actually via um, the present constitutional and political crisis around um, the border that a set of American geopolitical choices have come together. Yeah, just as you were talking there, Helen, it did make me think that when we're thinking of Biden himself as a politician, he's obviously got these real strengths, and, and some of them, you know, ordinary Joe, middle middle class Joe, 
who was able to defeat Donald Trump. No mean feat at the last election. But when we did our episodes on Joe Biden, we also talked about how he shifts as a politician. He finds the center of the Democratic Party and he kind of locks in there. And that's been how he survived over the years from being an anti-busing candidate in his early years to being seen as a progressive toward, towards the end. Um, and I think on this question of migration, I was looking at some polls and they were showing how migration, being tough on migration actually became less popular under the Trump presidency as voters reacted to the president. So there's also that going on, that voters react to the incumbent president. And but what they seem to have done is that Biden responded when he came in to this, un, the unpopularity of Donald Trump's measures on the border and liberalized the rules at the border. So in part, create, exacerbated the crisis that is now costing him potentially. I mean, The Economist this week suggests that this crisis on the border is going to cost him the presidency. So this, this ability to shift has been his political strength. But shifting in the wind like that and not seeing the potential consequences of his liberalization policies and the bind that he now finds himself in, as you say, what is in it for the Republican Party to now fix this for him, in a sense? With well, I think that the, this is where we get us to what we want to talk about after the break is because the Republican Party is itself in this congressional level pretty divided about what to do about it because it has to make hard choices now. Like how much importance does it? attached to yeah. the border and how much importance does it attach to funding Ukraine? And it's how these two questions have got put together and then their relationship to China that we're going to turn to after the break. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back. So, Helen, let's start with Ukraine. Uh, so in, in November, I think it was, the Senate, the, well, the Republicans in the Senate unanimously agreed with this policy of tying further aid to Ukraine, further military aid to Ukraine, with tougher controls on the border. And they did so unanimously. Even Mitt Romney was going ahead with this, you know, the, the, one of the most forceful critics of Donald Trump left in the Republican Party. So this was something that was not necessarily controversial. And this is starting to break apart now? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that there is much less Republican unity in the Senate on this and the sense that you have Mitt Romney who say, look, we've got quite a lot out of the Biden administration. Mm. We've basically got them to agree significantly reduce numbers of people, a willingness to send people back over the border without their claims for asylum being processed. And that this is a very big change in policy mm. from what the Biden administration did in its first weeks in office, including dismantling some of the controls that Trump had put in place and, and, and justified around the um, pandemic. So the people like Mitt Romney are saying, let's take our win here. It's really important to fund Ukraine mm. and we can now move on. That's clearly something that Donald Trump doesn't want to do. No. And it's clearly something that most of the Republicans in the House of Representatives don't want to do. So the Speaker of the Republican Speaker in the House, Mike Johnson, has made clear that he's opposed to the emerging um, compromise between the Senate Republicans and the and the Biden. And Trump is, Trump is praising him for that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and then you've got people saying, look, who who are being critical of Trump in the Republican Party, saying, look, he just wants the issue. He doesn't want to actually address the border. Yeah. He just wants to be able to talk about the border all the way until November. Yeah. And then that's a problem. 
Um, it's a problem both in its own terms because it doesn't do anything to to alleviate the problem on the border, but it's also a problem because it means that we can't actually move on Ukraine. So in this sense, I think that the way in which the Senate Republicans tactically pursued this in November has ended up dividing the Republican Party as much as actually it's divided the Democratic Party between the part of the progressive wing that are very, very unhappy about the concessions that Biden has made they see that as 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 like giving into um, yes. Trump. Now, what's striking about it all this in a way is is it's all getting framed around Trump. I mean, in this sense, yeah. he's kind of like set the agenda. Just um, just like the question, just like before in 2016, yeah. when he could be he, everything. However crazy it got, he was able to float above it and and um, benefit from it. So even if the Republican Party divides over it, it might not necessarily affect his chances of mm. of securing the, the presidency yeah and i think we can see as well that there's a difference between the position he's taking on the ukraine question mm. and the and the the more establishment if you like republican party establishment like senate republicans as well so that was always like a tension in the yeah. sense of, of them effectively siding with him about the border tying it to ukraine because he's not incentivized enough on saying we need funding for Ukraine in a way in which someone like Mitt Romney certainly yep. um, is. Or like the Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell, who looks like he's been pulled in all directions now. Um, yeah, he seems about to be changing question. his tune a bit, which is, uh, you know, if you're, uh, if you're in Ukraine, you should be particularly worried about. I mean, the other thing, I was watching a Trump speech, one of his sort of long rambling speeches over the weekend, I think it was from Las Vegas, and he was tying together not just the funding for the war in Ukraine to the border issue, but to NATO as well. And he was saying that he wasn't saying don't fund Ukraine or I'm going, you know, we shouldn't be supporting this war at all. But he was saying that the Europeans need to fund it. And that was quite an interesting argument that he was running with. He was saying that a NATO, he in his in his words, wouldn't come to America's defence if America was ever in trouble. So this was one claim. I, I don't think it's entirely wrong, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and then um, he's also arguing his figures are, I think, are, are, are completely off. But he was saying we've put two hundred billion dollars on the table, and the Europeans have put twenty billion dollars on the table, which is must be uh, wrong. I don't have the figures to hand. But I think once you add up the European commitment to Ukraine, because it, it comes in different packages, doesn't it? I think the, the Europeans are doing more of the economic heavy lifting. Then they become more equal. But again, it comes back to this issue that he ran with in his first, uh, in his first term, which was that the Europeans aren't pulling their weight and we are being ripped off. And this is a consistent Trump message. I think this is one of the sort of paradoxes when trying to think of Trump. And I mentioned this about Biden in the first half, that Biden actually changes his position a lot. If you look at what Trump says, it's very consistent all the way back to, the, I think it's the late 80s, where he first emerges as a kind of political figure, taking out an advert in the New York Times. It's all about America is strong, but it is acting weak. The world is laughing at us. We are defending our allies and they are taking advantage of us economically. So back then it was Japan principally. Now it's more Germany and, of course, China. China is not an ally, but the same sort of essential argument is made. And it's about American weakness. And he tries to present this strength. And it's all about, you know, effectively, we should be paying less and we should be using the might of the United States economy to bully weaker powers into doing our bidding. And he uses this and he used this in this speech in Las Vegas about the Mexicans and effectively saying we should be using the threat of tariffs to force them into line on the border issue, on dealing with uh, the drug gangs and all the rest. And that, that I mean, that is, that is effectively his policy and you can see why it might appeal to people. Because we're going to turn, obviously, to the, the question, uh, as we said, of like China's role in yep. relation to this. But just on pushing your line of thought, though, on Ukraine and the consequences then for European choices yep. of this impasse in Washington... Is I think you can say that the well in the early weeks when it became clear that the Senate Republicans were tying Ukraine funding to the border, that the expectation was, and clearly Zelensky had this expectation, 
that this was just a kind of like a temporary problem yeah. that would go away. Mm-hmm. And there was an expectation in quite, in quite a lot of the commentary, actually, in the United States itself, wasn't the media commentary anyway, that a deal would get done by Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this was just sort of internal Washington politics and that the usual compromises would be made. Mm-hmm. But here we are at the end of January, and that isn't yeah. what's happening. Actually, the internal Republican congressional position has become the weaknesses of that have been exposed. Now that pushes the European Union in deciding, well, indeed the UK for that matter as well, but you can see it clearly in what's going on in the European Union into harder choices. Mm -hmm. Because now for Ukraine to continue to be supported, the European Union does have to do more, or the European Union plus the UK um, has to do more. And now we've got reports coming out, I think, I mean, we're talking on like Monday morning, they seem to have uh, came out over the weekend that actually the, there are people within the European Union who have got plans for how effectively to punish Hungary yep. if Hungary doesn't get on side this mm-hmm. week with authorising more support for Ukraine. So you can already see, I think, the, the cumulative consequences of all this yep. playing out like on the, the European side. The European choices have got harder and obviously, Ukraine is more directly relevant for the European countries than it is for the United States, exactly. where there's an Atlantic Ocean um, well, separating. That, that literally is what Trump said in, in his um, speech, you know, it matters more to them, but we're paying more. And But you, you can see then how, the, as I say, that already there just are implications to this impasse in Washington for European countries uh, about what to do. Mm. Um and at the same time, I think, is that it's still, though, pretty hard for the Biden administration and those congressional, those in Congress that want to support Ukraine to see, like, what the way out of this um, mm. is. Because it would look like the Biden administration is getting close to the limits of what it can offer to the Republicans in changing its border policy that doesn't really deeply divide the Democrats. Yep. Um, in Congress. So it's not just a question on the border and the relationship to Ukraine of like Democrats versus Republicans and Trump's position as the leading candidate for the Republican nomination. It's the internal conflicts within both parties. Yeah, I guess it's a conflict. I mean, they pull the camera right the way back out and you think, okay, with Ukraine and the border, should the two issues be tied together like this is that reasonable is that moral is that sensible for united states power in the world but you can also just think of it as you know america's responsibilities in the world and the scale and the size of its power and how costly it is to continue that to to maintain that power to maintain supporting countries in eastern europe in asia in the middle east uh all of all of those responsibilities—they're enormous. And you know, we, we, as we as we mentioned at the very very beginning, three U.S. soldiers killed in in Jordan from a from an attack from Iranian-backed militias. By the look of it, the, the enormous bill, in just in terms of the number of dollars required to prop up Ukraine. All the while, going back to the structural issues that we talked about, there is a sense of the republic itself just as a, as a country decaying for ordinary Americans, or that's their feeling for ordinary Americans, that they can do all of these things in the world, but they can't afford to do the basics that a state is required to do, which is to continue to improve the standard of living for ordinary Americans, not just the, the wealthiest 20%, but also just to, def, just to defend your border. And that border crisis, that inability to to manage that crisis, it's reasonable because it's true to link the two together because there is a sense that the United States is not doing that basic job, but it is but it is maintaining this kind of vast empire. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you can see um, how the politics of this have become really hard in relation to Ukraine hmm. because the framing, you know, like that is uh, Ukraine, you know, has been invaded by Russia. The framing that Biden's been keen on is to turn Ukraine into a kind of like symbol of democracy and that this is a democracy versus autocracy um, war. And for that reason, it's very important that 
the Americans and indeed the Europeans back um, yeah. Ukraine. But you can also see why saying that, as in making that argument at the same time as it looks like there's chaos on your yeah. own border and that you, the federal government, are impeding in a certain mindset the efforts of the Texan government, which is the only one of the border states where the governor is a Republican, mm. to control that border, that that is a politically pretty difficult place to hold. And that, I think, was the bet that the, the Republicans in the Senate who don't like Trump were making in mm. tying like the two questions together to recognise that if in the medium term you want to carry on supporting Ukraine, then the border question must be um, addressed because otherwise the entire ability, you might say, of the United States to engage geopolitically is going to be constantly undermined by this, well, why are we engaging on the other side of the world Yeah, if we can't sort our own um, border um, out? But that exposes the fact that actually within the Republican Party, the Trump part of the Republican Party has got a much bigger critique of the projection of American geopolitical power yeah. in the world than just what's going on in Ukraine. And I think when you start looking at why the border is even more politically potent in some sense now as a political question in 2024 than it was in 2016 when Trump was first um, using it, then we've got to think about the relationship of what's going on in Mexico to yep. China yep. in really, I think, in two different ways. First, that the issue of the, the fentanyl that comes across the border where it's produced either directly in China or it's produced from processed chemicals that come from China. And then the Mexican drug um, cartels are manufacturing uh, it and it's coming over um, the border. I mean, there was the beginnings of that in two thousand by two thousand and sixteen. I think that that dynamic really starts really probably from about like two thousand and fourteen. Before that, the the drug cartels were focused on plant based drugs rather than synthetic yeah. drugs, and it looks like they get much more money from synthetic drugs than they did from them. Well, I think from, it's absolutely terrifying from from, yeah. from heroin. But also, you've then got the question of like Mexico's relationship to China's yeah. economy. So Trump wanted to make a question and indeed succeeded in um, renegotiating NAFTA. So it's not called NAFTA It's effectively NAFTA 2.0. Yeah, is, uh, I think it was in, in 18. And if you then look at the Inflation Reduction Act, the Biden administration passed, as we've talked out about before, the geopolitical subtext of that is very much against China and it gives privileged position in relation to the energy transition to the states which the United States has free trade agreements with and obviously centrepiece of that is Mexico and Canada. Yeah. But what you can see in the last few years is Chinese companies investing more and more in Mexico, mm. particularly actually in one of the northern um, Mexico uh, states, moving production to Mexico so that they then can export into um, the American um, market. So there's been quite a significant increase in Mexican exports into the United States, but some of them may actually be being re re essentially coming from originally China. from um, China. And you've got China looking to uh, invest in like electric vehicle plants, rare earth plants mm. uh, in um, Mexico. So this brings a whole other dimension to what the relationship is between the United States and Mexico, because yeah. In that sense, I think both Trump and Biden were saying to Mexico, look, you align with us economically. Economic and, Monroe doctrine. Yeah, and you don't align with China. But the last couple of years, I mean, I think it's 2018, the Mexican election brought to power. I don't know whether you would call him a left-wing candidate, but certainly significantly to the left and certainly an economic like mm. nationalist. Uh, and you can see the Biden administration getting more and more worried about the relationship between China and Mexico. I think it, there was a point at the end of last year where Blinken was sent to discuss with Mexican government a whole set of issues, the border being one, but I think also the, the China question. And so it, it, once you look at it this way, you've actually got a lot of the geopolitics of the 
America for the United States playing out quite directly yeah. uh, around the, the border. And in, in one sense, I think we shouldn't be surprised like how this has all come together. There's a book by a man called Robert Kaplan called Revenge of Geography. And he said in that, uh, Mexico must play a central function in any grand strategy we decide upon. Now, that's quite revealing, I think, because in a way they get into Mexico by accident. But you can see where that's, where that thought is coming from when you now look at the fault lines that have been played out across the Mexican border. There's almost like concentric circles, isn't it? So you have NAF, you have this NAFTA agreement, the original NAFTA agreement in 94, and then you have the China trade agreement in 2000 and it, then its entry into WTO in 2001 and how those overlap and how you can start to tighten the NAFTA agreement as Trump did. So, I mean, if you think about some of the when, – when you think about protectionism versus you know free trade and Trump is labeled as a protectionist, I think it's just clearly far more complicated than that. And if you – so Trump's renegotiation, re- renegotiation of NAFTA, he negotiated more access for American farmers basically into the Canadian uh, market. And I think there was this one interesting change where cars must have 75% of their parts manufactured in the NAFTA countries to qualify for the, the no tariffs. So what they're effectively doing is then trying to pull apart those concentric circles that have been formed. So you don't have China then flooding Mexico with its goods that then just come up into the United States. I don't think, I don't personally see that as a protectionism versus free trade issue. I mean, that seems like a sensible policy of the type that Biden would follow. And in fact, make much harder in his economic policies, the Inflation Reduction Act, which I think some people describe as the most important economic act in, in our lifetimes in in the effect that it's going to have, yeah, sort of almost acting like a magnet, binding American allies back to the United States rather than drifting off into into China's orbit. So I think there's much more going on here. And the way you were talking about Mexico there, Helen, it made me think about almost actually made me think about Ukraine in that if you look at this border geographically between the United States and Mexico, then it's it's quite porous, isn't it? It's very hard to see how you properly defend it. So it clearly is a threat to American national security, just in, just in terms of what do you do about that border in the same way that the Russians think about Ukraine and think about its security because it doesn't have an obvious geographical border facing into Europe. I mean, I think that the whole issue um, of the the US-Mexico and the nature of it in a, in a geographical sense, I mean, we need to remember it's nearly 2,000 miles long. Half of it is the Rio Grande River and half of it is the desert. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Uh, it's an extraordinary border in the world, both in, I think, in a geographical sense, but also because of the standard of living differences on either side of it. Once you realise how much control on the Mexican side of it in much of that territory that the drug cartels Mm. have, it wouldn't, I think, be going too far to say that in some sense that the United States has a border, not in part of it with Mexico, but with territory that is the equivalent of being controlled by warlords in terms of if you think about the drug cartels um, in that sense that's an extraordinary thing in it in itself now obviously there's also a very long history to this in terms of like where the border is Mm -hmm. which is you know after all the product of the u.s mexico war uh, of um, 1848 and then texas's place in that in relation to history is also pretty singular because as we know texas is the one state that actually has been an independent Mm -hmm. republic. And so this is a whole set of really, I'd say, quite foundational questions about the nature of the United States as a territorial state that are opened up by this question. And that's, I think, why it's not politically going away and why I think that it's not at all surprising both that a set of constitutional questions about the American Union are being played out through the border, but also that these geopolitical 
questions for the United States are. And it kind of raises the question, which I think the sentence of Kaplan's really helped get into some focus for me, is it, it, it's like there is a, a an additional, if you see what I mean, existential question yeah. for the United States in a geopolitical sense, I mean, by that. We've talked about there being a front in Ukraine mm. in relation to Russian power, a front around Taiwan in relation to Chinese power, a set of fronts in the Middle East in relation to Iranian power. But there's also, in that sense, a front for the United States itself on its own border that is fundamentally bound up with its domestic um, politics. And the way in which I think that China has become more economically influential in multiple ways in, in Mexico than was previously the case is an indication of the way that these questions are increasingly not separable yeah. from each other. And if you actually brought Venezuela into the the picture... From where a lot of the migration is coming from. Then you would bring the relations between the Iranian regime and Venezuela in, yeah. into, in, and, into and this. And Russia. Into this, yeah, um, as well. Yeah, I mean, I had not understood that fentanyl was produced or, or required China's involvement. I just had not appreciated that. I mean, because I, I think if you are an ordinary American voter... When you are looking at those four fronts that you're talking about, the Middle East, which has become almost a bipartisan consensus that they want to get out if they p- could possibly get out and turn their attention elsewhere. And then the other two fronts of Russia and China. I mean, I think certainly for most people, they would think of the home front with Mexico as being the most impactful on their own lives. If not just walking around cities in California and seeing the scale of the fentanyl crisis there and how it must have a kind of psychological impact on how you see your own country and the kind of the sense of degradation, whether or not the economy is performing well or you're, or not, or how powerful you are as a country or not. If you're driving down the street and it's completely full of homeless people and the drug addiction is as rife as it seems to be then that sense i think would be overwhelming and the questions to do with ukraine and, and china become secondary issues i mean the foreign policy issues are almost always secondary issues anyway but i wonder again whether it comes back to the most fundamental question for the united states which is you know what does it do with the power that it got sort of post-1945, you know, where it is this singular power in the world? Is being that powerful fundamentally something that a republic can't deal with? You know, it's too powerful and that you end up being too stretched, your responsibilities too much, the power of the presidency too much, and its ability to act everywhere in the world without bypassing Congress, as we've seen, this kind of the idea of the imperial presidency. And whether you just it starts to eat away at the ability to manage the republic itself. I would say that that's overdoing it and that America is still an extraordinarily successful country in, in almost all ways. Many of its successes, Britain would desperately want uh, some of it for our own. But it definitely has enormous problems and many of them to do with this inability to manage the border. I, I, it just seems remarkable to me that the Democratic Party have allowed that situation to get this bad, which fundamentally is presenting Trump with his best route back to the presidency, something that they themselves believe is existential. And yet they have played such an important role in in exacerbating the problem. I think that's true in a way, but I think you've also got to bear in mind is it's just like how objectively difficult this border question is for the reasons that we've talked about it in terms of the nature of it as a border, the length of it, the yeah. terrain that, that it goes through on the desert side and the fact that if you look like historically I mean you could see some sort of parallels I think maybe from the like the Roman Empire yeah. here if you have like borders in places which are where on one side of it much more economically developed on the other side of it are economically like underdeveloped these do historically produce crises for I guess the same will be true in Europe yeah the imperial power if we're going to use that yeah. language like um, going back to Rome so in that sense I think from a long historical perspective, we wouldn't actually we would actually expect some kind of pretty difficult politics to be playing out um, around this um, question. I think we can see, though, in terms of the question about what kind of contest about foreign policy might emerge 
through what is going to be this extraordinary election year. And I should say that the Mexicans are also having an election um, in the middle of this. God, I didn't um, realise that. (laughs) Yeah, is that the question of how Mexico is dealt with, thought about as a foreign policy question, I think was going to become quite to the fore because Trump has made clear, and he looks like he even flirted with it when he was in office, of the idea of military attacks on the drug cartels. Yeah. So this question about where is American military power used, mm-hmm. Trump will politicise that in relation to Mexico. And that's why I think it's important to see how the Mexico question, the border question, plays out or connects to, would be a better way of putting it, not only the domestic politics of the US, but that the, these really deep now conflicts about how American power is going to be used um, mm. in the world. And I think in some ways, if we look at it historically, it, it, it's it's easier to understand it if you think about the United States actually having a set of ongoing strategic weaknesses rather than thinking about it in terms of the United States being the world's most powerful yeah. state. Yeah. And with that, Helen, we should end this week's episode I found it quite depressing at times, but completely illuminating. We're going to have to turn back to those weaknesses in the American state multiple times over this year, because this is going to be one of the most extraordinary elections that will any of us will ever have seen in our lifetimes. And so with that, thanks for listening. Please do follow and like and give us a rating and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot. And as ever, this podcast was produced by Ewan Daughtry.